Today's World podcast helps independent creators live their creative and financial freedom. I'm your host, Fei Wu, and I'll be taking you through a series of interviews with creators from around the world who are living life on their own terms. Each episode is packed with tactics, nuggets you can implement, origin stories to make listening productive and enjoyable. We're not only focused on the more aspirational stories, but relatable ones as well. We also have non-interview-based mini-series releasing throughout the year to help deep dive into topics such as freelancing, marketing, even indie filmmaking that will benefit creators like you. Show notes, links, and ways to connect with the guests are available on phaseworld.com. Now, on to the show. Hi there, this is Fei Wu, and welcome to another episode of the Phase World podcast. I am super excited today, whether you're a new listener or an existing listener, welcome and thank you for staying with us. It really means so much. Well, today I have someone quite special who has appeared on a much earlier episode of Face World, and his name is Stephen Shapiro. Stephen started his innovation journey by founding and leading a 20,000-person process and innovation practice during his 15 years spent at Accenture. And he's back today. Why? Because he just released a brand new book called Invisible Solutions, which I have right in front of me. And the subtitle is 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. I have a quick announcement to make as well, which is that Phase World Podcast and Phase World Media is now on YouTube. You will find this very interview in a video format. Yes, that means you're going to be able to see me and Stephen having this very conversation instead of just video. But if you're a podcast or audio type of person, stay with us right here. If you want to check out our video format, we have other tips, tools, type of content for creative entrepreneurs just like you. Yes, to help you level up financially and creatively. Definitely come check us out under Phase World. Here's what's in it for you from this conversation with Steven Shapiro. Together, we talk about how he went about constructing this book and finished writing it based on 10 years of consulting experience and his user testing process of how he was able to gather and leverage user feedback to create the best and most optimal version of his book. And how this book compared to some of his previous ones, such as Best Practices or Stupid Personality Poker in terms of the writing and marketing experience. And for those of you who are in the process of publishing your first or second book, Stephen answers the publishing industry questions and what you need to know as a new author. For creative entrepreneurs like you, like me, whether you're new or experienced, Stephen helps answer this question among several others, such as how do we stand out with so much competition in the market and where to seek valuable, trusted and actionable advice. Well, without further ado, I want to welcome you um, to this conversation with Stephen Shapiro. And guess what? If you have any questions, I would highly recommend and welcome you to share them with us right here on Anchor where we now publish all our new episodes. And Anchor is our new hosting service. We're still experimenting, but we're really excited for the fact that we're now so much closer to our listeners. You can give us a thumbs up, you can clap, you can leave us questions. But if you're a social media type of person, definitely find me there anywhere, really, at FaceWorld. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D on Twitter, uh, where else? Instagram, Facebook, of course, and YouTube. That's it. I can't wait to see you at the end of the show. Enjoy. 
I realized that you were literally one of the first people, not even top 10, the first five people I interviewed for my podcast called Phase World back in 2014. And I love surrounding myself with people who are constantly innovating and doing things that excite them. And because of that, I am, you know, recently very, very pleased to find out that you've been working on this new book called Invisible Solutions. And, um, you know, I've been reading also prior to this call as well. So could you give me like, we, we haven't even talked about this, like what triggered you to write such a book? Like what, what was it like, you know, from kind of years ago when you first started to ideate that process? So my last book, I submitted the manuscript on March of uh, 2011, I think it was. And uh, it it was called Best Practices Are Stupid. I like the book. It's a great book. Uh, But one of the things which I realized was I, in, in some of the parts of the book, I talked about the importance of asking better questions. And, you know, I gave a few examples, but it left people wanting more because uh, it was one thing to say you need to do it. It's another thing to actually give them the tools to do it. So I was going back actually as I was, as I was looking at the history of this book, I went back and I realized nine years ago, one month after the manuscript for Best Practices or Stupid was submitted to Penguin, uh, I decided I need to start creating something that will answer the question, how? How do we ask better questions? How do we actually reframe a problem? How do we know if we're asking the right questions? And so I started building something which I called the Challenge Toolkit. And the challenge toolkit was really just a, a, a toolkit that would allow people to reframe their problems. And that evolved over time. I used it with my clients. We had some great success with it. But I never really planned on or I, I get the thing in the back of my mind, it was going to be a book, but I just never knew when or how. And then it was a year ago, I locked myself in a hotel room and said, okay, time to write the book. And I just wrote the book uh, and then spent the past year editing and refining it and improving it and getting better examples. And that's the... You know, for a book that I wrote relatively quickly, it took me nine years to write it. Wow. So I didn't realize that the trigger happened at a hotel room. And I, I wonder, you know, that's some determination because I'm also working the book along with several other people from my community, some that, you know, whom you're familiar with. How long did it take for you to kind of shape up and, and create the first draft? Uh, being honest, again, I had nine years of material yeah. I'd been collecting, whether it's speeches articles, conversations with clients, videos that I got transcribed, uh, podcasts I've been on that I've got transcribed. So when I, when I, I had all this body of work ready, uh, when I sat down, locked the doors, turned off the phone and started writing it, it was really, I had the first draft that I printed. I mean, it's a shell of what the final book is, but I had a first draft, which you could actually read from cover to cover in three days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, you know, it, it, to, to bring it to production quality level, it took basically a year. So it doesn't take a long time to get the first book version of the book out. In fact, uh, I started writing the book in December of 2018. And by April of 2019, I had copies printed that were being distributed. I wasn't selling it, but I was distributing it to my past clients and to people that I trust because I wanted to get feedback. I wasn't sure whether the book was ready so I wanted to find out what examples worked, which ones didn't, which lenses worked, which ones didn't. And it was, it was but it's really interesting because you can get a book from start to finish in your hand, printed in a matter of weeks. It actually is amazing what you can do these days. Wow. Like what are, I, I know you work with some of the services that you recommend and, you know, what are, do you recommend that people are, you know, self-publishing it 
one way, meaning they just go ahead and, you know, research different companies you, they can work with? Or is there a particular formula or format that you recommend people when they turn to you for, hey, what, you know, what the heck am I doing when it comes to self-publishing? Well, I, I think the key thing is that, you, and this is just in publishing in general, not just self-publishing, is you need to know why you're doing it. Because uh, that's going to determine the strategy. So I had a self-published book that I came out with in 2007, and I used, uh, it was pure, true self-publishing. I hired a cover designer. I hired, you know, did the interior layout. I, you know, hired people to do the editing. Never had an IS, ISBN number, so you couldn't buy it anywhere. My goal was to sell it in bulk to my clients. So I do a speech, there's 500 people in the audience. I want to be able to give them something that I could customize. So each cover was customized with the client's logo. The interior was customized with a message from the CEO or the event organizer. And that was the purpose of that book. So that's a different model than if you are uh, trying to create a hardcover, high quality book like I'm doing this time, which is also different than if you want to use uh, KDP, which is Kindle's uh, publishing platform that they have. So there's, there's, there's no one answer. Mm -hmm. There's uh, so many different ways that you can go about publishing a book these days. And it really depends on what your goals are, how many books you think you're going to sell, uh, like in some cases, print on demand is the right answer. Because if you're only going to print a handful of books and sell a handful of books, well, it's different than somebody who has to print 5,000, 10,000, or 20,000 copies of their book and hope that it sells, which by the way, 99% of books never sell more than 1,000 copies. So you really have to know what your platform is and what your goals are. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, I feel like that that's a something that, that just triggered me that the way that how you broke down that question is something that people can actually learn from the lenses and the, the techniques from the book itself. So before I kind of jump right into it and, and realize that I'm a reader, you know, I'm someone who worked with you in particular on this book, um, who would you say is the book targeting? I think people are always curious about that. Like, or has that changed, you know, during the time that you've written the book? Yeah. So I think it's, first of all, important to mm -hmm. tell people what the book is, because I don't think we've talked about the book. So the book is called Invisible Solutions. Uh, the subtitle is 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems. And uh, the, the, the goal of the book is, or the premise of the book is that uh, the best way to find a solution to your problem is to not focus on the solution. Having the answers isn't the answer. It's actually about the questions. And we don't spend enough time uh, trying to step back and say, what's the problem I'm really trying to solve? Uh, and can I look at it from a different angle? So uh, Mark Twain has this nice quote, which I won't bore you with all the details of, but there's a line in it that I love, and he calls it a mental kaleidoscope. It's basically taking all these different uh, colored pieces of glasses he would describe, and you keep on turning them to get different combinations. And that's what these lenses are, is it's a mental kaleidoscope that allows you to take a problem that you're trying to solve and, and reframe them different ways. So that was the, the intention was, Helping the original title of the book was How to Solve Any Business Problem. That was the original title of the book. Uh, too literal. I guess people didn't like literal titles, so we changed it. Uh, but uh, the, the goal originally was my sweet spot for the past 25 years has been innovation people, executives running large innovation departments in large companies. As time has gone on, I realized maybe it's not just innovation people, maybe it's anybody who has problems that need to be solved, which could be in sales, it could be in marketing. So a wide range of, it could be middle managers, it could be people on the front line. Uh, and, you know, over time, it's just evolved away from innovation for large corporations to problem solving for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I noticed like the reason why I said the, I feel like the audience is much bigger, like you said, than big people who are senior executives working in very large businesses or specifically innovation teams is most recently I realized that as I was reading the book and as my mom's going through some of the medical procedures in the past month, I noticed that the lens I was reading about is about emotion, right? And somehow that just triggered me to think about that what I have learned about her as well as myself and how I was able to reframe that to the positive and for us to you know, live our lives very differently than just the mundane every day. You know, we have the same arguments, we go through life, you know, very much the same way. And that kind of helped me to even manage and deal with my everyday life somehow. So that's where I saw the opportunity and the potential of the book being something that should be like a household item, you know, should Mm. be something that people can integrate as part of their lives. Well, and Ultimately, I know that the process is not going to solve every problem in the universe. There, it's just, there, there's nothing out there that's going to do that. But there are categories of problems that I do know it solves business problems. It will solve pretty much, there aren't a lot of business problems that I've not been able to find solutions to uh, with this. Now, if it's a complex, really, really technical problem, it might not provide the solution, but it might provide some nuggets that move you in the right direction to finding a solution. Uh, when it comes to personal life, I know it works for many different problems, but it's not going to solve every problem. And I wouldn't claim mm-hmm. it. I don't position, I position it as a business book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, in, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the emotion lens because that's actually one of the lenses as I went through the iterations of the book, that's one that changed. Uh, so you talked about the positive side of the emotion lens, but what I've, what I've discovered over time is that there's positive and negative and there's actually power in negative too. And especially when it comes to engaging people, sometimes you know, it, it's, it's not so much that it, positive or negative emotion, but just even having emotion in a problem statement. Because the Mm. the thing that we tend to do when we're innovating or solving problems is we look at everything from a very intellectual lens. Uh, You know, how do I, uh, you know, increase revenues? How do I increase sales? As opposed to the emotional part, which might be, you know, how do I get my customers to feel like they're at home when they're in my store? Or how do I get our employees to uh, feel like we're the employer of choice or give us a five out of five on employee satisfaction surveys? Or, you know, so those are the positive sides of things. But there are some great examples of even tapping into the negative was a great way of stimulating people's creative juices. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I, I noticed it's a very yin-yang type of book. And it's not about uh, what I like about the book is that you're not inserting yourself firmly to say there's only one solution. But I feel like even within each solution, there are permutations of ways where you can actually look at it, like you said, is not just positive or negative. So as a speaker, and I have, I have the pleasure to witness you kind of dissecting and talking to people at various levels, including people who are running what we call small businesses with you know, everyday challenges, what are some of the examples? By the way, this podcast clearly completely unscripted, just me throwing questions at Stephen. Um, what are some of the examples where like a situation that you remember? What was the business problem like and how you're able to talk through that problem? Yeah, well, let's, let's first, you know, I run a small business. It's yeah. pretty much me. Uh, so let's talk about how I've used the lenses, even in the writing of the book and how I've, you know, it's how it shaped my thought process. Because my thought is, as they say, if you don't eat your own dog food, you know, there's something wrong. So I, I try to eat my own dog food as much as I can. And uh, so what I did was when I came up with the first iteration of the book and I had my lenses, 
uh, I decided to apply the lenses to the book. So it's sort of this iterative process, which is also why it takes a little longer. Is it's not like I started off knowing exactly what I wanted to say. So the first lens that I decided to choose was the pain versus gain lens. And basically what that says is sometimes people make decisions uh, more quickly if you are solving a problem rather than if you are trying to give them something nice, uh, something positive. And uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a quick, quick example here because we're, we're just sort of playing here. Uh, you're, I, know, I know you're in Boston and uh, you must know Jordan's Furniture, right? You know Jordan's yes. Furniture? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. So, uh, so when I moved back to Boston back in 2003, one of the things I decided to do is buy a mattress, a really comfortable mattress, uh, the best mattress I could possibly find. And you know, so I buy this mattress and super comfortable, slept fantastic. And I'd turn on the TV and I'd always hear you know, commercials or on the radio, I'd hear commercials for buy our mattress, get the best night's sleep. Well, I was getting the best night's sleep. Those commercials would do absolutely nothing to get me to buy a new mattress. And then I turn on the TV and there's Elliot from Jordan's Furniture. Uh, And what he does is he basically, he has out a vacuum cleaner and a mattress. And he starts vacuuming this mattress. And he's telling the audience as he's vacuuming the mattress that if your mattress is over eight years old, it will weigh twice its original weight due to the dead skin cells and dust mites that have accumulated over the years. And then he empties the canister that he'd been vacuuming the, the mattress with onto the mattress and it's filled with disgusting, gross stuff. And so, you know, the thing which I would have you think about is what would have me buying a new mattress? Best night's sleep or dust mites? Well, it was the dust mites that had me buy it. So the, that's the pain versus gain lens is sometimes we make decisions based on pain rather than just gain. And when I looked at the book that was originally written was it was a gain book. It was an innovation book. Hey, you're, you're a company, you want to grow your business, everything, you know, how do we take it to the next level? Rah, rah, success, success. But I also know that when we have strong economies like we have right now, at some point, the economy will turn around. The economy will tighten. I mean, this has been a good run, a long run. Uh, so if I'm only running, uh, writing a book for the game side of the equation, when the economy tanks, I have a book that will become irrelevant. Innovations typically cut the second that there's a recession. So I wanted to focus on the pain. And what are the pains people have? Well, it's their problems that they have. It's the opportunities that they can't tap into. And if I can help a company in any economic position solve their most difficult and important problems, that would be valuable. So that's one lens which I used in the very, very, very beginning of writing the book. Uh, And then I used two other lenses that I I think are are interesting. Uh, One is, uh, it's sort of a weird name, but it's called hypernym. Hypernym basically means take a word and find a higher level of it. So for example, if you went to uh, a a rescue shelter where they have animals and you went and saying, I want a chihuahua, Mm -hmm. okay, that's that's a very specific instance. A hypernym for chihuahua would be dog and a hypernym for dog would be pet. And each of those opens up different opportunities because if you went to the shelter and you're only looking for chihuahua and there were no chihuahuas, you would leave without a pet. Yeah. But if you were open to dogs, well, obviously there's a lot of dogs, but maybe you hadn't considered cats or tigers or lions or whatever they might have in the shelter. Uh, so what I do is I said, well, what's, what's a, a hypernym for book? I'm writing a book. What's the hypernym? Well, product is one of the hypernyms. Well, okay, what kind of products then? So I started looking at it and say, well, okay, obviously there's the book, the ebook, the audio book, but then we started creating a video book, which is a completely different product. And then I started looking at other products and you know, we're creating some cool technologies uh, that you know about that uh, you know that are going to help create um, a, a totally different level of interaction with the lenses, 
which then led to the access lens. The access lens basically says, instead of hiring someone, like hiring me to speak or owning something, how can you rent something and have access to it like sort of Netflix? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's the, the tools that we've created actually give people access. So I've, those are three different lenses right there that just demonstrate how I applied it specifically to the book. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know, I love the book and I know that it's, we're kind of, by the time people are hearing this, your book will be on the shelf. They can order right away from Amazon. And I, I have to say, preparing for this interview, what I learned about the Lens Browser is it really helped me uh, quickly process, digest uh, all of these concepts kind of on a single screen. And for me as a media person, as a podcaster, was kind of convenient to my surprise. And um, you know, for me to kind of remember what some of the names are as well. So what was, was it challenging to come up with some of these names? Because I personally find summarizing, distilling information um, to be really challenging. Was it hard for you? Well, keep in mind that this is something I've been working on for nine years mm-hmm. and I've been testing it out with clients. And so, you know, what people will be buying is not something which I just made up. It's not mm-hmm. something that came out, you know, uh, in, in a year's time. This is based on nearly a decade of testing the concepts with clients and seeing what works, and what doesn't work, what lenses are most valuable, which ones aren't. And so I actually have a catalog of close to 75 different lenses. Mm-hmm. Some of them just weren't as valuable. Some of them weren't as universal. Some of them were very, very specific to certain situations. You know, and ultimately, I'd like to bring all of the lenses and more to people, but we needed to start somewhere. And so I, I found the 25 that were the most universal, the most powerful, the ones that we found solve pretty much any problem. And uh, that's, so that's basically how it came about. And they just, you know, got improved and tweaked and better examples as time went on. Mm-hmm. And I have this like, crazy brainstorm right now because half of my brain is thinking that what you just brought up is what my community as podcasters, YouTubers, and future writers thinking about is I hear this pain point where people have a lot of these ideas, but they don't really know what to cut, like what to eliminate. And, you know, like for us, first time authors compared to you who's written tons of books, some of these are best-selling books and you are a speaker. So it's very natural for you. And for us, I think myself included, is that you go from no idea to think where to say nobody cares about this book and nobody's going to read it to all of a sudden you have all these materials and you're stuck with them all. Then they all seem so important and close to your heart. And you work with an editor or writer, be like, like exactly like you said, you need to eliminate like 70, 80% of it. Like what are, what is your advice? I know it's a little general, um, non-specific to kind of help people navigate that and and make the book as most helpful and, and useful as possible? Uh, well, let me answer a slightly different question first, and then I'll come back to that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've found is that there's two ways that people tend to write books. And I call them the color by numbers approach or the puzzle assembly approach. Uh, the color by numbers approach is one which people who are deep, deep, deep experts in their content and have delivered it in a particular way and they know exactly the structure of the book will work. So what they do is they say, well, my book's going to have 12 chapters. And those 12 chapters for each chapter, here's the four points that I want to make in each chapter. For each of those, here's the three supporting arguments. Boom, color in the numbers, send it off to the publisher, and they're done. I mean, I know some people, one, one guy in particular who's published, I think, 70 books. That's the way he does all of them. Uh, 
I'm not a 70 book person. I'm on, I'm on number six. So I'm a lot slower because uh, my approach is the puzzle assembly, which is basically, I know a lot. I don't, and I know what I want to say, but I don't know necessarily how it all hangs together. Uh, and so what I do is I use a tool, a Mac tool called Scrivener, which is a great way for organizing your thoughts. And it's basically, you like Scrivener too, good. Oh, yeah. uh, and it's, it's basically just, yeah, the way I like to think about it is uh, index cards. Mm-hmm. And so instead of trying to figure out what are, what's the structure, I just say, well, I want to talk about this lens and this lens and this lens. And so each lens becomes its own little note card. And then, oh, I want to add this topic. I want to talk about differentiation. And I want to talk about you know how to become distinctive and how do you uh, you know, how do you, uh, shift your mindset? And so I just create all these cards and, and they just sort of explode. And then I move them around and move them around and move them around. It's like assembling puzzle pieces. And eventually it hangs together. And in the process, things that don't fit become a little more obvious. Mm. So that's, you know, pretty much what I try to do as, as much as I can is, uh, use that process because I think things become self-evident. But I think the other important thing for me, and, and, and maybe it's just a, uh, you know, you'd think doing what I'm doing for as long as I'm doing it, I'd be so 100% confident uh, in, in what I'm doing. But the reality is what I believe to be true doesn't mean that's what the market believes to be true. What I think is the right, you know, problem to solve doesn't mean it's what the market thinks is the right problem to solve. And I think that's one of the, the mistakes that we make is arrogance, thinking that we have the answers or we know what the questions are. And so that's why for this book, because this one was so important to me, is I didn't go straight from writing and editing into publishing. I went from writing, editing to printing copies to my trusted advisors. And we sent out a couple hundred copies to people I respect. I hopped on the phone with them and they told me this lens didn't work. So there's a couple of lenses that just, they, they liked it, but it wasn't as universal as I had hoped. So mm-hmm. I swapped in a different lens. And we kept on playing with it until we got it the way which most people liked it. So I like feedback. And that also helped me understand what do I need to cut? Because the market will tell me what's not working. Mm-hmm. That process can be painful for some folks. And I remember, as you know, I recently released a documentary as of late last year. And I have to admit that the most painful yet most helpful conversation I had with my team, the production team would be, we all worked so hard on this. This better work because I don't think I have the budget to do it again. And in retrospect, I have to admit that we can go through a laundry list of things that I uh, that I feel we could have done differently, including things we didn't really know on the spot until we do know now. And I, I think it's pretty daring for you to, even though it was very necessary, but for you to seek feedback on an ongoing basis from people you respect. And, you know, how did you handle that emotionally, by the way? You, you have to avoid taking it personally. Mm-hmm. You have to know that what your goal is, is not your ego, but rather uh, the best possible product. I remember when I worked with Penguin on my last two books prior to Invisible Solutions and I'd go in and I'd say to the other, I said, please tell me anything that doesn't work. I want you to rip it to shreds. If you don't, I'll be disappointed. And he looked at me. He's like, nobody ever says that. Everybody's like, don't criticize my baby. It's like, no, it's not. This is not my baby. This is something which I want to make sure the world is going to want. Uh, it's not my creation for me to love. It's my creation for others to love. And, you know, I, I love the perspective. You know, I, one of my beliefs is sometimes simplification is the best innovation. A lot of times we're always thinking, what do we add? Mm-hmm. You know, what do we make better? But there's a, there's a quote, the guy wrote The Little Prince. He said, you know, perfection is not attained when there's no longer anything left to add, but when there's no longer anything left to remove. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that is just a, a brilliant perspective in terms of what is perfect, what is perfection, what is innovation, and we have to be comfortable knowing what to kill. Because the reason why a lot of companies fail isn't because they're not doing the things they should do; they're doing things they shouldn't be doing. They, they, there's mm-hmm. work that they're investing in that is parasitic because they're taking money, investing in bad solutions irrelevant solutions that could be invested in other areas of the business that would have uh, more value. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I love your answer to that. And I think that triggers me to kind of just do a quick switch to look at the fact that um, you have joined part of my um, mastermind. And I know you're quite active in the community on Facebook as well. And you know, to my surprise, because the way I see you as this keynote speaker, I've seen you standing in front of audience of thousands, maybe more than 10,000 in some of these situations. And yet the people I interact with to clarify are not just podcasters, YouTubers, but everybody has their own small business as uh, either executive coach, uh, you know, someone working in creative. People are engaging with you and asking you questions. So all of a sudden I realize it's relevant and and, um, you know, I hear those all the time. And for my own small business in digital marketing is um, I want to take this opportunity maybe to ask you a few questions that I think the community would really want, not just the solutions for, but kind of see how you break it down. So same questions uh, when people are running their business, they always ask, like, how do we stand out? How do we differentiate ourselves? There's so many other coaches and digital marketers out there. How do we get noticed? Uh, I think, you know, you, you use the word differentiate because I think that's a, an important word. Uh, I, I think part of it is, obviously, if you're going to differentiate, you have to be distinctive. You have to have something. It doesn't mean you have to be unique, but you have to have your own spin on it. Uh, you know, it, when it comes to innovation, there are literally thousands of speakers and consultants talking about innovation. Uh, the key is to find, you know, what makes my style, my perspective, unique. So part of it is my content is a little different than what other people say. Uh, my voice is different in terms of like when I'm on stage, I'm very experiential and inter- interactive. I want people to feel like they're part of a show where they're not in the audience, but actually on the stage with me. Uh, those, are, those are my things. But then you have to get the message out. And every business is different. So I think, you know, standing out is uh, there, again, as everything, there's no one right answer. It really depends. Are you B2B or are you B2C? If you're selling to individuals, well, now you might have to sell 10,000, 100,000 books or whatever it is you might be selling, toasters. Uh, me, because I mainly work with businesses, I don't need to sell as many. So I need to stand out in a different crowd. Mm-hmm. And I just need to make sure, I think at the end of the day, it's my perspective is, and, and you know this, Faye, there's mm-hmm. three things that I always believe you need to do in order to be successful. One is uh, you need to uh, find something that you really get jazzed up about it because you have to love what you're doing, uh, especially as an entrepreneur. If you don't, just go get a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is you have to be good at it or at least have the ability to become good at it or you know who to partner with in order to make it successful. We're not going to be great at everything, but there are certainly aspects of our business which you need to be, you know, very clear that you are the the person to go to. And then the last one, and I think it's important because a lot of people get it backwards, is you need to create value for others. It's not about creating value for yourself, but it's creating value for others. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me to define innovation, innovation to me is not about uh, ideas. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's not about technology. It's about relevance. We need to be relevant in the minds of our audience. We need to create value for the audience in the way they want value created. And I think that's just important. And then you get out there and you do it. Uh, most of my work, I've done some analysis on this. I would say probably 80 to 90% of my work comes from people who have either been in an audience when I gave a speech, a past client, somebody gave them a recommendation. It's a speaker's bureau that I've done work with in the past. Uh, you know, whatever it is, it's sort of a word of mouth. So the way I stand out is by doing a great job for my clients and adding as much value as I possibly can, mm-hmm. such that they will recommend me to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that does, that's not always the right strategy. It's, there's going to be different strategies. And that, mm-hmm. again, comes back to the question. What's, you know, people, people say to me, Steve, if I, like, internet marketers call me all the time. Hey, Steve, you know, what if you could grow your list to 1 million people? I'd be like, yeah, but if that million people only has one buyer, that's not really a very useful list. I would rather have a hundred, you know, raving fans, people who are just super excited about what I do than a million people who don't really care. Mm-hmm. So it's the question that becomes so important. Absolutely. Yeah. And then another popular question that pops up all the time, and there's kind of a bit of a debate, is finding your niche. I think it's so easy to Google that everybody needs their own niche, including when they speak to people who have never done anything, who's never published a single episode of a podcast or a blog post, who's never done a single video and hit publish. So for me, that was my struggle trying to take in that advice. And yet, that I realized for me, at least I needed to experiment more, uh, experiment a lot more before I realized who I am, what I'm about and leaving kind of my past experience intact, but not making myself all about the person I used to be. And I find the two lenses, even though I always struggle to say like hypernym and hyponym in a way to make me realize who I am about and the serve, the landscape of my services, that was really helpful as well. So what's your kind of, what's your take on like the whole finding your niche and be that one keyword everywhere sort of approach? I I, look, I I think it's, I know, I know everybody says that you want to have a niche and I, I, I see the value in that, but I, and I guess it really depends on how you define niche. I mean, I'm innovation. I mean, I, I don't work with particular industries. I don't work with particular functions or departments. I don't work with particular types of people. Uh, I mean, my process is universal and I've worked with companies in every industry, every function. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, the, the reason why people say niching is because it sometimes makes it a little easier. I remember somebody once told me a guy who uh, was in the publishing industry and he said two books were published that were pretty much identical. One said, you know, how to enjoy Walt Disney World. And the other one was how to enjoy Walt Disney World with children. Now, the reality is 99% of the people who go to Disney World are probably there with children. And the book that said how to enjoy Disney World with children outsold the other book. Uh, so it, it, sometimes niches are, are just a, a marketing tool to get people to think that you know what their industry deeper. Uh, but I, I don't think it always works. I mean, like in my world as an innovation person, What I bring to the table is actually the fact that I'm not an expert in any industry. I'm not a financial services expert. I'm not a manufacturing expert. I'm none of these, but I've worked in every single industry and I bring what works in one industry to other industries. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that cross-pollination becomes really valuable. So the niching advice is sometimes, you know, just take it. Mm -hmm. You know, my best advice is to ignore all advice. Uh, Mm -hmm. What works for one person doesn't necessarily work for you. You need to understand the context and we don't spend enough time understanding the context of how mm-hmm. we're running our business. Mm-hmm. Now, look, if you come from a financial services background, 
and you're an innovation person and you love consulting like one of my buddies, great. Then become the world's best financial uh, services innovation consultant that there is. That makes perfect sense. But if you're forcing yourself into a niche just to do that because that's what everybody tells you to do, I'm not saying it's the wrong advice, but just question it. We need to recognize that the advice that people give us comes from a good place, but isn't always relevant to what we're working on. Absolutely. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Just, you feel better when you talk to people who can give you a, a different, different lens to kind of look at life and examine um, kind of the common advice. Speaking of which, another challenge I hear all the time is how do we cut through the noises and get to the information and knowledge that are actually helpful? Uh, people joke around, it's like, but this is good for you. This course is good for you. This video and all these advices were good for you. And somebody said, Tammy said, well, so is castor oil. Like, how do you <laughs> determine what's good? I mean, I, you are faced with a lot of these challenges as well, I'm sure, Stephen. Yeah, I don't think I have great advice in this other than to find the people that you respect and trust that have implemented. I, look, when I take advice, I only take advice from people that I admire and would love to emulate and learn from. And if they give me advice, I'm more likely to accept their advice. I'm more likely to, uh, if they recommend a course, to use their course. Uh, but I don't I, I just know for myself that how I see the world is differently than how someone else sees it. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I need to really look at it with you know, fresh eyes. And, and the times when I blindly trusted someone is the times when I made some of my biggest mistakes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think most people know themselves at some level, know what they need. Uh, I think it's very useful to have mastermind groups because then you have people Mm-hmm. who get to know you, you trust them, they trust you. They can give you the honest advice saying, hey, stop doing this because this is hurting your business. Uh, and I think, the, and these are free things. I mean, you just, you know, find three friends that live nearby that are doing similar type of work and say, let's get together for coffee every month. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Just something as simple as that can be valuable. So I really think the network is what's the most important. So if I have a problem, uh, I don't turn to a course, I turn to a person. And if I'm working on something, I say, hey, you know what? I need an e-learning platform. Okay, hey, Faye, what, you know, what, I know you're working with some e-learning platforms. What are the ones you're using? Because I know you've had a lot of success with it. I want to I wanna learn more from that. And that to me is the key, is just knowing who to turn to. Mm-hmm. I love it. And, and I think, just throw, can I just mm-hmm. throw one, one, one last oh, thing please. there? Is when I hire people in many cases, not every case, but in many cases, especially earlier in my career, I didn't hire people for what they knew I hired people for who they knew because I sort of believed that if I'm going to hire somebody as a mentor or coach or whatever you want to call them, an advisor, uh, and they get to know me and trust what and value what I offer, and they have a huge network, well, now I get a multiplier effect. I'm not just getting advice. I'm now getting access to people that they've built their careers getting access to. So the who, I mean, I know that uh, Simon Sinek likes to talk about the why. I'm much more interested in the who. Mm-hmm. Who do you know? Not, not from a utilitarian perspective. I'm not, I'm not trying to take advantage of people, but who I know, who I have access to is to me, in many cases, more important than the why. And to me, that, that has proven to be true as well in the past year, basically two years, for me to close a client, not just close a client, but to work with someone I love working with, that we can together innovate new ideas, we trust each other. Nearly all my clients, without selling, without me putting on a single paid ad, are from 
for example, the Seth Godin Alt MBA community, including people who didn't even work with me in the same cohort, didn't even come from the same session, and the Dory Clark community, and obviously from you, Stephen, as well, the referrals that you had. Um, and that's absolutely true about the community who we belong to and, and kind of the people that we know um, that resonate with us, like spiritually and, and sort of the way we approach things in general, even without just setting sights on, this is the exact result I want. Um, that's why, you know, myself and people in my community say, this guy just sold a book with, you know, he gained a million followers within, you know, two weeks. We usually, we often don't fall for that. Um, so not result-oriented. Yeah, it, it, it seems unfortunately that there's more and more people who are, you know, selling snake oil. And what they do is they decide, well, I couldn't make it in the world of consulting, so I'm going to sell to consultants. Or I couldn't make it in the world of speaking, so I'm going to sell to speakers. And you know, that doesn't mean that somebody who sells to speakers isn't a good person to buy from. Uh, mm-hmm. But you just need to understand, do they really have the experience? Do they know what they're talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's just, unfortunately, there's too many people out there selling you things that aren't valuable now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we ha- we just have to train our muscles to kind of see that through um, more clearly. And you have a lot more experience than I do, but I do see people becoming early entrepreneurs, you know, have their side hustles, so desperate to leave their jobs, tend to fall for these websites and articles and, and people. And um, so we have, you know, a few minutes left and I, I want to talk about, are there things that you want to discuss, but you haven't had a chance to, um, any word of, of advice, anything you want to leave with the audience? Uh, I would say that, you know, first of all, when we're entrepreneurs, it, it gets easy. I, I know at the end of the day, uh, it's an emotional ride. It is a roller coaster. Uh, for, at least for many of us, uh, you know, there are days when the phone doesn't ring and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to go get a job somewhere or whatever it is. And look, I've been, I've had my own business for 20 years now. Uh, but every single year I go through a cycle. Okay. Well, this is the last year. This is, you know, this isn't working. And, but I, I look at people who are not in the world that we're in people who have you know, regular jobs who have to commute in traffic. I look at people who, uh, you know, just don't have the flexibility that we have. And so even if there are times when I worry, even if there's times when I'm like, oh, this is hard work, I figure, you know, in the scheme of things, it's much more fun. It's not as much work because I get to choose the work I get to do. So I just, I try to wake up, you know, just feeling really, even when I'm, when I'm, when I'm worried, just I remind myself that, we are all so blessed to do the things that we do. Uh, and, you know, I think that's for me, you know, you, after 20 years, you still, you still have the ups and downs. It's not like once mm-hmm. I get to a certain point, everything's going to take off. It's always work because the mm-hmm. world changes. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, every, every day there's a new technology that comes out. There's a nice, bright, nice, bright, shiny object we need to be chasing. The world changes. We need to change with it. There is no better way to end this because it really, it means so much. And I truly, I appreciate your honesty because the people who approach me and want me to help them get in touch with you are people who find you just so inspiring and mesmerizing. And I don't think they necessarily see the way that what you just described, that I think they want to be you so that they can leave all those uncertainties behind 
And I, I'm just so, I feel so blessed that you're able to share that transparently. You know, it means, it means so much because <laughs> like every year I feel like for me, yeah. So sometimes like, yeah, a few times a year, maybe at the end of some months that <laughs> makes me think about that. So yeah, it's, it's a great ride. It's a challenging ride. And anybody who thinks that the ride's going to end probably should just keep a real, you know, day job because it's, it, 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 it gets met more challenging. I think as time goes on, as more people recognize how great it is to be an entrepreneur and there's more competition and there's more technology and tools and disruption and all those other things, but it's, it's wonderful. Mm. So I would, awesome. Steve, I'm going to add one more question and maybe this is something about not probably not unique to you, but I love the fact that you're evolving with technology. Granted, you come from an engineering background and science has always been part of your DNA. How do you still then find yourself have to adapt to new technologies, open yourself up to things of the unknown that you're uncomfortable with in the past 20 years of working as an innovation speaker and expert? Well, absolutely. And I think for, for me, for two reasons. One is when you talk about innovation, a lot of people immediately assume it's about technology. Mm-hmm. So when people hear innovation, they think artificial intelligence, machine learning, virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people think innovation is. And so I need to at least be versed. I'm not looking to ever be uh, a machine learning expert. I'm not looking to be a blockchain expert. There are people who have those as their expertise. But I need to figure out how all these things fit together from a cultural perspective inside of organizations. Uh, mm-hmm. But just putting that aside, people consume content differently. You know, the get up on a stage and give a speech, that's changing and it will continue to change as people have access to, you know, material on YouTube. Uh, you know, I just, I just saw a study recently which showed that uh, ad revenues from uh, YouTube was larger than like uh, ABC, NBC, and CBS combined or whatever the numbers. It was just like, okay, well, that's a pretty interesting shift in things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as people have access to this content, how do we create more value in an environment where people consume content differently? Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't want an hour. Not saying they don't, but maybe they want six minutes. Maybe they want one minute. And we need to adapt and evolve the way we market, the way we sell, and the way we deliver our content to meet the changing expectations. Uh, you know, if I always delivered my content assuming everybody's on desktop, well, that's pretty old school. Most content's consumed on mobile. So I need to know that everything I'm creating is mm-hmm. at least mobile friendly if it's not mobile first. I love all the new content you're creating, which I will certainly be including links and some of the teaser content. I love the background. I love these fast-paced videos that, that you're creating, reading the book um, and being able to answer questions and through interview formats. So um, I am very excited and optimistic about the launch. I would love to invite you back after the book launch as well, because I feel like that's the missing piece that we, there are a lot of interviews for people before they launch a product. Um, but then there are very little conversation kind of after it's like your learnings and reflections. So I would love to do this again, if that's okay with, with you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and just anybody who's thinking of doing a book and wants to do it, you know, mm-hmm. the way that I'm doing it is recognize that sadly, Writing the book and publishing the book is the easy part. Mm-hmm. Selling the book, getting people to even care about your book, especially now where there's like, I don't know what the number is. It keeps on changing, but it's like one or two million books come out every single year, I think in the US alone, whatever that number is. It's just staggering. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
we are, as entrepreneurs, whatever business you think you're in, like mm-hmm. I might call myself a speaker or a consultant, that's not my business. I'm a, I'm a marketer and I'm a salesperson. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. Now, I need to have my expertise, but I need to be wearing at least that hat from time to time because if I'm not using that marketing and sales perspective, having the best book that sits on a shelf and never sells doesn't mm-hmm. create value. Having the best uh, product that doesn't sell doesn't create value. If we're all in the business, I think a lot of us become entrepreneurs, not to get rich, but because we want to make a bigger impact. We Mm -hmm. want to feel the impact that we're making. And in order to make an impact, people have to know about it. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to come back and talk about that. Absolutely. This episode of the Face Royal podcast is brought to you by Face World LLC, our marketing service agency created for independent creators and businesses. We offer website development, video production, marketing mentorship to people who want to tell better stories, level up, and create a profitable brand. Face World podcast team are chief editor and producer Herman Ceballos, associate producer Adam Leffert, social media and content manager Rose De Leon. Transcript editor Alina Ahmedova, and lastly, myself, the creator and host of Face World. Thank you so much for listening.